Welcome to the Mary Shannon Bible Study with speaker, leader, and acclaimed Bible teacher, Mary Shannon. Every week, she'll dive deep into scripture using her unique blend of laugh-out-loud humor and hitting-you-between-the-eyes truth that we all need. So put on your big girl pants, because here we go. Look at Eli. It starts with 1 Samuel 1, 9. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on his seat beside the doorposts of the temple of the Lord. This was not just any seat, so don't visualize it. It's not like he's hanging out in a chair. This is a raised seat. It is like a throne. And so here he is at the doorpost of the temple, the the eastern gate, the entrance, the courtyard, and he is up on a raised seat. Why? Because he literally is elevated to the position. He, in many ways, is acting as a judge. People come with their problems to this high priest and he would make judgments, but his main job is to oversee worship, all right? But the question is, what discernment does he really have? Because what do we know already? What did he think about Hannah? He thought she was wasted, all right? And so that really, like we said last week, it tells a lot about the culture of the time because he hadn't seen true worship in so long. He didn't even recognize it when he saw a woman laid out prostrate uh, in front of the Lord. And I mean, praying snot bubbles and all like, you know, I mean, she was letting it rip. He didn't recognize it because remember the people's hearts had turned away from God. Not only that, he didn't recognize his own need for it. So here he is, he's supposed to be overseeing all of worship, but yet really what discernment does he really have? Not much. So the lowly Hannah comes in and pours out her heart knowing she has no power to change her situation, but she believes in God's unmeasurable power. Yet the one the culture says has the power doesn't do the same. He doesn't humble himself. Instead, the one who has been raised up misses the opportunity for true worship. He should have joined Hannah. I thought this was interesting. The one whom the world told was worthless, Hannah, because she couldn't have children, she found her worth in the Lord. The one whom the world elevated on the throne raised two worthless sons. Isn't that interesting? Do you see the play on words there? Because she was viewed as as good as dead. She was worthless and insignificant. But the Lord said, no, baby, I hear you. I see you. I am here for you. On the flip side, the one the culture gave all the worth to, all the significance, who was raised up, He raised two, it's not unusual that they would use this word, worthless sons. 1 Samuel 2, 12 through 17 tells us a little more. It says, now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fort brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force." Thus, the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. 
That word worthless literally means contemptible, despicable, useless, all right? I know that it's hard for us to hear in scripture that someone is described as worthless, but you have to understand their position as a priest. Basically, in that position, they are useless. That is what is happening. So what are they doing? Well, what they're doing is they're coming in and they're taking what is not theirs. So in Leviticus, we are told, bottom line, that God had given a portion of each sacrifice for the priests. Okay, do you realize that the tribe of Levi did not have an inheritance in the land? They were the tribe that were not given territory. They weren't given a certain territory. Their inheritance was the tabernacle. And so God is saying, I will provide for you. That is your inheritance. Through sacrifice, you do not have to worry. I'm going to take care of you. And so, for example, in this kind of sacrifice, they would have been given the shoulder and the breast. Okay? And so not only would the priest receive a portion, the giver also would keep a portion to celebrate together. Remember the story of Hannah? Elkanah was celebrating at the feast with Hannah and Panina and the children, and he gave Hannah a double portion. What are they eating? They're eating part of what they brought to sacrifice. So it is family celebration during the sacrifices. So the priest got a part, the family got a part, and God got the first part, the fat parts, because that is where all the flavor is. And so when it was burned to him, that pleasing aroma would rise up. So here you have these worthless priests who, by the way, it said they did not know the Lord. Wow. Well, in some ways you can tell right here, they did not know the Lord. They knew about the Lord. They were trained how to serve the Lord, but basically this is saying they do not have an intimate relationship. They have not heard the voice of God. And even here, it's even talking about even acquaintance. And so what they would do is they would come into these family celebrations. These families have traveled to come to Shiloh where the tabernacle is to give their sacrifices. And they're walking in their parties uninvited with a three-pronged fork walking up to the stove sticking the fork in and taking what they want. Talk about dime and dash. And you can do nothing about it. And then they went even beyond that when they brought before the family party, when they brought the meat, they got tired of boiled meats. They got tired of their breast and shoulder and then everything else. So they decided I'd rather roast it, which means we need some with fat. So we're going to get it even before the Lord. And so they would go and they would take what they want. And when it it was not given to them, they would take it by force. Wow. So here you have these priests using their power to intimidate and manipulate people for their gain. Do you see any any application today? Are there uh, situations today where we see spiritual leaders manipulating and using their power to take advantage of people for their own personal gain? Of course we do. There's nothing new under the sun. The very ones who are supposed to be the mediators between God and man instead became barriers. We're going to look at Samuel a little bit later, um, but I want you to think about something. Samuel became a priest. He was not entitled to it. 
He was from the tribe of Levi, which means at some point in his life, he could be asked to go serve in some capacity as a priest, but he did not come from the high priestly family where it would be lifetime service. The only reason that Samuel is giving lifetime service is because of the vow his mother made and the fact that Eli, the high priest, stamped it with his approval. So he was not entitled to this job, but look how beautifully he did it. Yet Hophni and Phinehas, what? They were entitled to it. And what happened? They scorned it. You know, it's interesting. I was a high school Bible teacher for a lot of years. And I used to, it just used to blow my mind sometimes. Um, and, and it's just a window. Trust me, I'm not judging these kids because a lot of them came back around, okay? But when you look at this window of time, sometimes the ones who had been fed so much scripture and taught, and they had the privilege of literally doing this as part of their school. Like, is this painful? I used to evaluate, like I am working my tail off to bring this alive to them, to make it exciting to them. And they would come in and really take it for granted when there were others who knew absolutely zilcho and they would come in or I would offer it at night and kids that never had the privilege of going to Christian school or having Bible literally would stop doing whatever they were doing socially and come to Bible and bring out their Bibles and their notebooks and we're like, gosh, where is the disconnect, right? Well, sometimes it's just time. They're gonna learn. It's in there, they just, they just gotta, they gotta get to it. But sometimes with that entitlement attitude, something is missing, there was a disconnect. They had been trained in all of these religious things, but it had not gotten from their head down to any kind of relationship to their heart. And so they were going through the motions, but they had none of the motivations. 1 Samuel 15, 22 says this, and this came out of Samuel's mouth as an adult. He says this, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices or, or in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Where do you think he learned that? Where did adult Samuel learn that? In his childhood. He sat and watched Hophni and Phinehas and various other priests walking through the motions and having none of the correct motivation of the heart. And he saw what happened to them and he's like, God is not into the, the motions. He wants the motivation behind it. He sees the heart. And so Samuel learned that by example, being in this location. I find it so interesting that Hannah didn't even live with her son, right? We talked about, she didn't even live with him. At five or six years old, she watched her plump, neat little thing with his lunchbox walk into the tabernacle and he was gone. He was there for life, full-time service, and what did she do? She was faithful to pray for him every day and make that little robe. And she prayed and she prayed and she prayed. She wasn't even there hands-on. But yet you have Eli who was hands-on every day. And how did his son turn out? It just goes to show you. Uh, on Saturday, when I listened to the service, you know, he speculated about what went wrong. I could speculate all day long about Eli, couldn't you? It's so easy to judge from afar. We aren't there. I wrote, well, 
Had Eli not spent enough time with his sons? Maybe. Was he too busy serving in the tabernacle to pay attention to his boys? We know how easy that can happen. Was he a little narcissistic in his discipline? Do you know what I mean? It's all about you. Your kids better behave, not because they better behave or learn anything, but they better behave because they're a reflection of you. And there are a lot of people in leadership who are very image conscious that will, instead of teaching the heart, will have a hard hand of reproval because really it's more about them than teaching their children. Maybe. So maybe they got bitter. Do you know some preachers and teachers' kids that get bitter of the fact that their parents were preachers or teachers because they felt like it was always about them and they always had to be just so perfect? I remember I was the Bible teacher on campus, so my kids were there. I found out every single thing they did. They could not breathe without me finding out. You know, I remember... um, I'm being videoed, so I have to be so good. I remember one time Zach popping off in class and saying something that boys used to say back in the day that is not politically correct today to one another. And the teacher, you know, got mad or whatever. And man, I found out about it coming across the courtyard. I mean, I found out everything. And I finally one day looked at the teacher and I said, here's the deal. I said, if you wouldn't call another parent and tell them about that, please don't tell me. It is a real bummer to have me on campus all the time as your mother that you can't even breathe without me finding out. And then what you do is you put it in my court and my nature is to say something about it. I got better at that, trust me. But I said, so please don't do that. So can you imagine being the sons of the high priest? Let's cut him a little slack, okay? I don't know. I don't know if he was harsh-handed. Probably not, judging by how he responded later as a parent. But maybe they resented that. Had he been too soft? Maybe. Could be. And what do we know? If you don't discipline the little things, what's going to happen? Yeah, they're not going to get better over time, right? You see the teenager smarting off in the grocery line to a parent, and you're like, oh, don't say anything. Shannon, shut your mouth. Don't say anything, right? Well, the reason they're doing that is because they were doing that what? Here. And so I always tell young teachers when they're coming in to teach and they're learning classroom discipline, I'm like, listen, you are not their friend. They can learn nothing in chaos. And so I'm going to tell you something, and you need to, you are a young teacher. Burn it into your mind. You deserve what you allow. You deserve it. Don't come tell me about it. You deserve what you allow. But doesn't that apply to everything? Doesn't that apply to just boundaries in general? You deserve what you're allowing. It is okay to have boundaries. We all have a dance in relationships. Do you know that? And over time, we get used to a certain dance. That's how we dance, good, bad, or ugly. And eventually, you may realize that's not a good dance. I should have done something different. Well, guess what? Today's the day. But be ready. Because when you change the dance, what's going to happen? It's going to be ugly before it gets better. 
because they're not used to those moves. So there's going to be all kinds of stepping on toes and all kinds of being unhappy and frustrated because the dance doesn't look the same anymore. But what's the deal? You stick to the dance. You better know your why. Your why better be huge if you're going to do this. And it better be the right reason. But when you change the dance, you stick to it because eventually what are they going to figure out? If they want to dance with you, this is how it's going to happen. You now have healthy boundaries. I don't know what Eli was all about. I can't go look back and judge him. We know something was awry. There was some disconnect. And guess what? It may not be Eli's fault at all. Because here's the thing. Life is not an equation. A plus B does not always equal C, right? Sometimes you do everything right and it just doesn't turn out. And sometimes I know people and you look and you're like, how in the world? Did that kid, this kid that I'm looking at, this young adult, come from that? They're a hot mess. You know, maybe they just did everything opposite of what they came from, and that worked, right? So it's very hard to judge, but we do know some principles, and the principles are spend time. Put your work in young. Handle the little things, because those consequences are a lot less than what the world's going to dish out to them later. Don't discipline out of image. It's not about you. They've been given to you as a gift. It's about teaching. It's about reaching their heart. It's not about reformation. It's about revival. So we know all of those things. I do know this. Hophni and Phineas were a reflection of their time. And that is what the narrator is trying to show us. The hearts of the people were always leaning towards the gods of the other nation. Their priests are no different. They are a reflection of the time. 1 Samuel 2.22 continues, it says, Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. Know, my sons, it is no good report that I hear from the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they will not listen. They would not listen to the voice of their father. For it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Well, we talked about that last time, right? And so... What do we know? When you come to a scripture where it says, and it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. What do we also know scripture says? God does not desire any to perish, but all to come to salvation. All right. This is exactly the situation with Pharaoh in Egypt when it says, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Okay. What is he doing? He's letting them have free will and their choices are leading them to death. It's interesting. Oh, by the way, it says, and now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. That part starts out saying, and Eli was very old. Remember, the narrator is painting a picture. He is painting a picture of the difference of Hophni and Phinehas and this pure Samuel over here. And we can see what is happening with Eli. It says he is very old. And later it's going to talk about his eyes being dim. So what do we know about maybe the fact that now he is old? What do we know about that? Maybe he has a little bit of a lack of energy. Okay. 
maybe uh, the fact that, yeah, he's not finishing well. He's gotten complacent. Could he have been a little lazy? We find out later he's, you know, he is a fat man. He's not moving a whole lot. And maybe he's benefiting from all the food that his sons are bringing home that they should not be. Um, how about the fact that maybe he is looking back and he is seeing that the fruit of his passive parenting doesn't look too good. What happens to us in that situation? When we look back and we see all maybe the mistakes we think we've made and how it's turned out, have you ever spent a day in the, if only, why didn't I? If only I had. I should have seen this coming. I should have fought harder. Shoulda, woulda, coulda. Right? But what is the fact? Yeah, maybe. But Eli has a choice when? Today. Is it going to be a harder battle? Yeah. But what is he called to do? Make the choice today. He needs to do something about it. Because he's, it says he keeps hearing about it. People are coming. This is habitual. He has been hearing about this and not doing a darn thing about it. And here's the problem. He is no longer just their father. He is the high priest. So not only should he have been parenting them all along, whatever has happened, but now it is past parenting. He is their boss. He is the high priest. He needs to bring down the hammer. And the sad thing is, is do you know what the hammer called for because of what they had done? Death. It called for death. I think there's a lesson in that for us because sometimes we don't want to discipline. We don't want to put the time in. We let things lax. And what do we know? When we discipline when they're young, yeah, it can be painful. It's hard. But it is nothing like when you fail to what the world will dish out to them. Right? I'm going to tell you, uh, Satan knew exactly what he was doing in the garden when he told Adam and Eve, oh, you can be like God, knowing good from evil. Do you know what a scoundrel he was? He is such the father of lies and half-truths. Because, yeah, you will be like God, knowing good from evil. But how fun is it to know good from evil and not to be able to do anything about it? Oh, you get to see it. You get to experience it. You get to know the difference in good and evil. But you have no power as God to do one thing about it. That's a bad place to be. I am telling you, he is sitting here old in his age. And I am wondering, yes, he is exhausted. And yes, he is dim spiritually because he hasn't made the steps. He is not finishing well. And right now he has a choice to bring down the hammer on these sons, these priests, because the name of God is at stake and he is not doing it. I love, uh, Mark Moore said this one day to me. I thought it was so awesome. It says, when a father does not do his job, the son will not be able to control either his anger or his zipper. Go back through scripture, truth. Look at the sons of David. Look at the sons of Eli. It is the truth. It was, it was amazing. So not only were they stealing the sacrifices, what else were they doing? 
They were sleeping with the women, the virgins who came to serve at the entrance to the tent of meeting, to the tabernacle. Were they married? These aren't Catholic priests. Don't get confused. Okay. They were married. Remember later in the story, if you were with me last year and we look, uh, I think it was Phineas's wife who after the ark was stolen and they died, she gave birth to a son by the name of Ichabod, which means the glory has departed. So they're married. All right. But they're sleeping with the women at the entrance to the tent. But it's more than that. Do you remember the cycle? The whole point was they began to worship the gods of the other people. And maybe they began to worship God like the other people. So all the other religions and all the things that are acceptable are infiltrating into the worship of Israel and into the tabernacle. And one of the things you see, especially with Canaanites, the Philistines, they worship Baal and Asherah, these um, fertility gods, and you had a lot of temple prostitution going on. And so you're seeing all of this begin to mix together. And so they're not only using their power to manipulate, um, to gain wealth or the food, but they are using their spiritual power to prey on these innocent girls that are coming to serve. I mean, this is bad. What is happening? By the way, do you understand the tabernacle? Do you remember how it's laid out? Do you remember the whole point of the tabernacle? It is how sinful man was able to approach a holy God. So when you come to the tabernacle, they would come in and the entrance of the eastern uh, gate of the courtyard, you would walk in and the very first piece of furniture was what? The brazen altar. It's where the sacrifices were made. It is the largest piece of furniture. It had horns on all four corners. It represents Christ, but they would lay the sacrifice up there, tie it down to the horns, and the priest would come up, slit its throat, and they would sacrifice and they would handle the blood. You cannot even progress towards the image or the glory of God without first sacrifice. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So the minute you enter, that is what you face is sacrifice for your sin. That's Jesus right there. People are saying, I got to clean up my life to get to God. No, no, you don't. You got to decide what you're going to do with the cross because that's the first thing. After that, remember the priests have blood all over them. They're sacrificing. So what comes next? Right next in the courtyard is the labor where they would wash the blood daily from their hands. So first it is sacrifice, then it is cleansing. First it is the cross, then it is a daily washing in the word. Then you would go in to the tent itself, the actual tent. And it was beautiful and it was lit up by the golden candelabra, the, the menorah. But the first thing on the right is the table of showbread. And so it was a table that had 12 loaves of unleavened bread, and it represent communion, fellowship with God. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, I will sit down and have fellowship. It is, it is getting to know the Lord. If that happens, right to the left is the menorah, the candlestick, the golden lampstand. And what is he saying? I am the light of the world. Spend time with me. What will happen? You too will be the light of the world. 
And then right in front of the veil, you have the altar of incense where they would take one of the coals from the brazen altar and they would bring it here. Why? Because we approach God through the blood of the lamb. And they would bring the coal and they would put incense and those incense would go up. It is the prayers of the saints. It is our interceding on behalf of each other. It is talking to God. And all of that was going up in front of the presence of the glory of God that was separated by the curtain that eventually when Jesus died was ripped in two. And on the inside of the most holy place was the Ark of the Covenant. What was in it? It's a little 411, little review. What was in it? The Ten Commandments, so that's the marriage contract. He did not run out of space. It's two things of the marriage contract. When you make a contract, everybody gets a copy. Okay, they agreed, he signed it with his finger. And so here you have both copies in there representing this marriage covenant. You have the budding rod of Aaron and you have the jar of manna from the wilderness. On top of that, you have the mercy seat that was made out of gold that was hammered, beaten in one piece. And then you had the cherubim looking over it. And every year on the day of atonement, the high priest would come in with the blood of a lamb for the entire nation and he would sprinkle seven times on the mercy seat. Why? The glory of God lived above the mercy seat. They could see it. It came down all from the, from the heavens and literally dwelt among, above the mercy seat. So God's focus was on the contract. These are my people. I'm committed to them. I have made a covenant with them. Here is what we've done. I am married to them. They're my special nation. How are they doing? How are they doing keeping this covenant? Not good. All right. But when he looked down, what did he see? On top of that covenant was the mercy seat and he saw the blood of the innocent sacrifice. The atoning blood seven times completion that it would be atoned for. That is where he lived. The whole point of the tabernacle, men had an opportunity to have a relationship with a holy God. If you line the furniture up, it is a cross. It was a picture of what was to come, that Jesus would make a way to relationship. And this is what Hophni and Phinehas were scorning. This is it. They were literally stopping them at the door because they were stealing the sacrifice, uh, the body of Christ. They were stealing it for their own gain. And the innocent ones that came to serve the Lord, they were taking advantage of them. I'm telling you, our God is slow to anger and abounding in love because if any of us were God, we would have zapped them, right? It goes on to say, in those days, the word of the Lord was scarce. Why do you think? Have you ever given someone advice over and over and over and over and they never take it? Do you just want to pull your hair out? So when they bring it up again, what do you tend to do? You're like, well... I've told you everything I know to tell you. There's really nothing else to talk about. Like it's out there. Have you ever thought that sometimes God remains silent because he's already said enough? 
He doesn't need to give us anything new. He needs us so to obey what he's already said. And so it was scarce because nobody was listening. And have you seen the play on words yet? Hophni and Phinehas were not what? Listening. Eli was listening. He was hearing, but he wasn't listening. He was not obeying. And then in a little while, we're going to meet somebody who, when he heard his name called, what? Oh, he was listening. He was listening so much that actually the word there is the root of his name. And so we're going to look at that. The narrator is making all kinds of imagery come alive in this story. Um, 1 Samuel 2, 27 through 36 says this. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus saith the Lord, did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose out of all the tribes of Israel to be you to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I command for my dwelling and you honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people, people Israel? Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. You had access to me. I gave you access that nobody else had and you were free to come in and out as the high priest. But here's the thing. He says, but now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. He goes on to describe how the family of Eli will be taken out of power. He is basically saying, did I not give you the highest privilege in the land? Did I not elevate you to a position above everybody else? Did I not give you enough position already that you could literally freely come in and out of my house as close to my presence as anybody is allowed? Did I not give you that? Did I not entrust basically the image of salvation to you, to the people? This gift to bring these hurting people of your land. Did I not give you that because I trusted you and I've warned you over time and you have scorned it? Why? Because you honored your sons over me. Ugh. How often do we do that? I'm going to tell you what, our children should never be on the throne where God is. And if you are young, you should never expect that. The problem is a lot in this world today, we've done that. And so we have a generation who thinks they are on the throne. They really do. We're going to talk about that a little more when we're in Samuel. They have an attitude of entitlement. They have an attitude that they should never hurt, never feel pain. The whole world rotates around them. And that is because we've allowed them because we've elevated them. And he is saying, you knew about this and you did nothing about it. Why? 
because you wanted to please them more than me. And I'm going to tell you, it is not popular when you say, no, we are not doing that. It's okay. I tell people all the time, learn from my mistakes. Don't buy the lies of the world. The world will tell you to rotate completely around them. They'll tell you if you don't go to a football combine this weekend, you're not going to get seen. If you are a sports parent here, can I just tell you that is junk. If your kid is good enough, he will get seen. You do not have to negate everything spiritual or push that stuff back because you're worried that he will not be seen. That is a lie. They use fear. That is not the case. If he goes out and plays football in high school and he's a stud, they'll find him. They will. Do you know how many showcases I paid for and went to for baseball? And I don't think any of those had anything to do with where, how Zach got to where he was going. And I'm going to tell you, there, our life was very much about a certain outcome. And we lived our life to get an outcome. We compromised a lot of things. And when we did that, we missed a lot of things of the heart. Because life is not about outcome. It is about the process with God. It's about the relationship. And so I am telling you that you better look at your priorities because Eli here allowed his sons to run amok. He allowed them to scorn God's offering because he wanted to please his sons and possibly, don't get this, they were of benefit to him. He got a lot of pleasure out of what they were doing. He wasn't fat for no reason. He was enjoying the plunder. And don't think for one reason we did not enjoy the plunder. We did. We enjoyed a lot of that. It was fun. We were in places. It's great to see someone succeed. It's awesome to be Stanforded out from head to toe. It's great to be able to brag about that. But I'm going to tell you in the end, that does nothing. Does nothing. And God is saying, man, I gave you this and you have scorned it. He's like, I'm no longer going to honor your house and no old man will be left. See, in our culture, we miss, we miss the point of that. I got to look and see what time it is. We miss the point of it. Because in this culture, old age meant power and wisdom. If you were older, you had greater authority and power, and you were known for your wisdom. You were honored. Man, have we turned that upside down. Now today, we honor the young. We put them up on the throne, and the old who've lived it, what do we do with them? We push them aside. And I'm going to tell you right now, it is beautiful when you have multi-generation because you need it. God didn't just say that old women are to teach the young women for no reason. We need each other. We need multi-generations because there are universal truths in every generation. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you are wearing, what you were listening to. It doesn't matter the culture. There are universal truths that we can learn. Young women, young girls need to hear from us. Uh, young moms need to hear things from us like, girlfriend, quit stressing. 
The boy is not going to pee his pants at 16. He will potty train. Lighten up. Nobody gives one darn what little Johnny, that he did it at whatever months, and your kids over here, eventually he will go. Okay, take a breath. You're stressing me out. You're making me not be able to go. I mean, everybody's stressed, right? You need to hear stuff like that. I need to hear from older women, girl, you've got a lot of life left. You've got a whole lot to do. Don't think for one second you're not going to get through this. You're stronger than you think you are. And let me tell you something. They've been through a lot. They need to be heard and they want to be heard. They need a purpose. There is so much we can learn from older people. They knew that and that's why this was a slam. Because for some of us, you'd be like, I don't care if there are any old people left in my family. No, this means you're not going to have any power. And I'm going to tell you, for the Levites, the high priestly family, their income was this. Do you understand that? This was their income. They have no inheritance. This tabernacle, this job, it's their provision. And so he's going to go on to say, and any that escape, that leave, are going to mourn, and they're going to come back to the other priestly families who get the job, and they're going to ask for any menial tasks so they can eat. I mean, this is big time. And so this prophet comes, and I'm going to tell you what, he slams it down. And he says, I will raise up a faithful priest. Now, at this point, God calls uh in the scripture, he calls Samuel. And we're going to look at that probably next time because I'm going to run out of time. But let me tell you the story as to how this all happens. All right. Because the very next thing that happens is the Philistines pop back up and they go to battle with the Philistines. God is going to begin. We're going to see this judgment begin to take place in this battle. The Philistines come and fight them. 4,000 Israelites die. They're like, <coughs> what happened? How did we just lose? I mean, God is with us. Oh, God. Oh, shoot. We forgot him. Oh, I know what the problem is. We forgot to bring the ark into battle. What were we thinking? We left our king back at home. We left God back in the tabernacle. So they summon and go back to get the ark, right? It represents the glory of God. It's where he sits. He is their king. And so we got to go get him. Who did they send to get him? Oh my gosh, what a picture the narrator is painting. Hophni and Phinehas. So they go and they get the ark, which by the way is covered in many layers so that you cannot see it. And it is carried into battle. And the crazy part is, is when it comes into the camp, they are so excited to see it that they are cheering and roaring and there's all this excitement, right? Because we just went and got our God. Do you realize that when the other nations went to battle, they took images of their gods and they put them in their pocket for good luck charms? They are treating God exactly like he's an image. Do you realize that we can do the same? You can worship the one true God, but you can do it in a way where you actually act like you're God and he's the image. That he actually is in a box and you're going to maneuver the box. You're in control of your whole life. But then when things go bad, you're like, shoot, I know what happened. We forgot God. Lord, I really need you to come into this situation and I need you to fix it. And by the way, I need your blessing for the next steps that we are taking. So how often do we do that? 
We go and get him off the shelf and we bring him in the situation. They are jumping around. They are shouting. The Philistines hear this and they're like, oh my gosh, we're doomed. The gods of Israel just came in the camp. They actually have more respect for the God of Israel than the Israelites because they say, oh my gosh, don't you remember what the gods can do? Think of Egypt. And so then their leader gives them a speech, that war speech, like we don't stand a chance. Do you remember Egypt? So we're about to go out. So go out with everything you have. Fight. Like you can just see them. So the Philistines are all fired up. The Israelites go into battle. And guess what? Philistines kick their behind. 30,000 die. Hophni and Phinehas die on the same day, exactly what the prophet told Eli. And the Philistines steal the ark. That is shocking. What is happening? God just allowed himself to be stolen. The glory has been removed from his people. Someone comes back. Eli's sitting up on his throne waiting to hear the word. He can't see. He's waiting to hear. And what does he hear? He hears that his two sons have died on the same day, exactly what the prophet said. And he also hears that the ark has been stolen and that breaks his heart. He falls backwards. And because he's fat and he's raised up, he breaks his neck and he dies. That is the beginning of the prophecy to remove the family of Eli from power. Later on, when Saul is chasing David, he goes to the city of Nob, which are all the priests, and he kills 85 priests. One escapes to tell um, David. And then later on, as the story goes, King Solomon finally removes the last priest from the line of Eli from his job. So all of that prophecy comes true. The story goes on that, listen, Israel's not in control, but the Philistines aren't in control either. God is in control because I'm going to tell you what, they steal that ark. (laughs) And uh, there are five cities that the Philistines have. By the way, the Philistines are Aegean people. They came from the island of Crete. And so they came across the Mediterranean Sea about the time that the Israelites go into Egypt. When the Israelites leave Egypt, they have already been pushed out of Egypt. They tried to come into Egypt. The Egyptians pushed them out. So the Philistines um, settled five cities along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. So when the Exodus happened, they did not take that route because God knew they were not able to face the Philistines. So they went around. So here you have these five cities along the Mediterranean. They steal the ark. They take it to the first city and they are struck with tumors of the groin. If you look that up, some people think pretty much hemorrhoids. All right. If you've ever had hemorrhoids and we're talking bad hemorrhoids, any tumor of the groin all right? You are defenseless. You can't walk, sit, nothing. You're talking pain. And it's probably because they were given a plague of rats. And so it could have been the plague that caused a sickness that brought the hemorrhoids. But anyway, they got tumors of the groin. They like, we got to get this ark out of here. So they send it to the next city. Guess what happens? Same thing. By the time they sent it to the third city, if you were the third city, what would you be thinking? Please pass us up. No, same thing. It goes all through the cities until finally they say, listen, we got to get this ark out of here. We got to get it out of here. 
And so they come up with a plan. It is the funniest plan. Do you remember how I told you that the other pagan religions had kind of infiltrated in to the, the Jewish religion, the Israelites? Listen, they lived around each other in tribes. They heard. They knew a lot about one another. And so they're like, okay, we got to send this back. We don't know if this is from God, but there's a good chance it is. So we're going to perform a test. We're going to go get a new cart because we sure in the world are not going to send it back on a cart that breaks down because then we're going to have a problem. We're not even know. So we're going to put it on the Mercedes Benz of carts. Then we're going to get a mama cow that is just two that have just had babies. And we're going to put the little babies in cages because a mama cow is never going to leave her baby because the baby needs her, needs her to survive. Her very nature is to stay with the baby. And so we're going to hook these mamas up to this new cart. We're going to put the ark on it, which, by the way, would have remained covered. And, oh, yeah, the Israelite God really likes offerings, guilt offerings. We're going to make images uh, as a guilt offering, and we're going to make golden images of our tumors. That's, that's what I would do. <laughs> We're going to make golden images of the tumors of the groin because that is what has happened to us. And we're going to make images of the rats. And so they put these images up in these boxes on this cart. And they said, if that mama cow walks without turning around to come back to her baby, then we're going to know that the God of Israel wants his art back and that all of this stuff is because he's not happy with us and he's in charge. That's exactly what happened. It's the saddest story you'll ever read if you care about animals, because here are these mama cows being obedient, leaving their babies, and they're lowing the whole way, but they never turn around, and they end up taking it to a place called Bet Shemesh, which is a specific area that happened to be given to a tribe, the tribe of Levites, and specifically the family of Kohath, which was given the job to take care of the things in the tabernacle. Isn't that interesting? So the cows actually bring the Ark of the Covenant back to the very family that would have known what to do with it. And when they get there, the Israelites are so happy that it's there, they make a sacrifice and they use the mama cows. That is so sad. So they give their life, they leave their babies, they're obedient, they cry the whole way there. And to thank them, we sacrifice them. And the sad part about it is, is the people there should have known that was not an acceptable sacrifice. Because the burnt offering, the sacrifice, number one, should have been male without blemish. I've never seen someone give birth without a blemish, <laughs> right? And so they're already starting off bad. And then it says that they looked upon the ark. So it could be one of two things. They either uncovered the ark, which they should have never, or they actually what? Looked in the ark. And when that happened, depending on your version, some say that 70 died. Others say that 50,000 died, um, which the narrator may just be proving a point. If 30,000 died to the Philistines, this was a much larger offense and so 50,000 died. Guess what happened? The Israelites are like, we don't want this here. Get this ark out of here. Wow. 
And so they call the people of Cariath Jerem and they say, come get the ark and take it away. How sad is that? The Philistines, I understand. They want the ark gone. They're like, this God is powerful. We thought we won the victory and our God was stronger. Uh Uh-uh. Our God ended up on his face laying in front and they got tumors. But even God's own people did not handle him well. And at the end of the day, they wanted him gone. Wow. So here you have this priestly family in the cycle of the judges. Now you're understanding the whole culture of what's going on. And you have this priest who is not honoring God above his sons. And the priesthood is completely corrupt and literally scorning everything that God has openly given so that sinful man can approach him in relationship. And they have scorned him. And they end up losing it, going to a foreign people who don't want it, coming to the Israelites who don't want it, and then he is sent away and basically put away. Is that what we do? Sometimes I wonder, I think 1 Samuel is all about control. It really is, that we want to be in control. And so here they are, they try to be in control. They want to run the show. And they want God to be in a box that they can maneuver and do, they want him to give them, them victory. Give us what we want at all times. It's about outcomes. And he's like, it never was about outcomes. I want to be with you. It's about a relationship. I stand at the door and knock. If you open the door, I will sit down and, and have a relationship with you. And then when they can't control him, what do they want to do? Well, if I'm not getting what I want, if things aren't working out, if I'm not happy, God, you never answer my prayer. You never give me what I want. This was the plan. What do we do? Then I don't want you at all. Do you see themes running through the Old Testament that are still relatable today? And in the midst of this story, you're going to see the opposite. Because next week, we are going to see a beautiful boy that is dressed in a white epid. Do you already see the picture? Completely different. And he is going to be asleep in the tent that is lit up by the candelabra. And he is laying on the ground because one of his menial jobs was probably making sure the lamp never went out. And there he is sleeping and God is going to cry out to him. Isn't that how he is? God is always calling out. And it honestly doesn't matter. He's just waiting for someone to answer him. He can use a left-handed weirdo in the book of Judges. He can use a woman. Right? That was very unusual, by the way, that he would use Deborah. He can use a jackass, honestly, to preach. Balaam. He's always calling. The question is, who's going to open the door? But here's the thing. He is in control. He is in charge. He is on the throne. We are not. And I don't know if you've ever looked back, but when I'm in charge, I mess things up. 
All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for tonight. Thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you that you teach a narrative because as we leave tonight, I can just hear the conversations between mothers and daughters about the story. Uh, I can hear the conversation in the car on the way back to college, um, just what they got out of it. Lord, be in those times because your narrative keeps teaching. It's applicable to each person and each life. Yes, we brought out points and principles and all of those things, but God, you are the teacher. Your Holy Spirit is the counselor. So I pray that this story would continue to teach throughout the week. I pray that relationships would be established here. I pray if there's a college uh, gal that does not have family in the area, that we can be that family to her, um, that we can mentor and have those relationships. And Lord, we give this Bible study to you. It can be anything you want. We're just gonna open your word and we're gonna talk about it. There's not a perfect person here. We're gonna do our best, Lord. Um, just continue to come and teach us. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity. Bless Kathy and Renee for opening their homes. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Mary Shannon Bible Study. Be sure to subscribe. Shannon also hosts the hilarious and heartfelt Mary Shannon's Table podcast, where along with friends, they chat about life, faith, and leadership. Check out the show now and subscribe. If you want to connect with Mary Shannon, go to Instagram at itsmaryshannon or visit itsmaryshannon.com.